0: Hello, and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. In this episode, we're discovering whether size really does matter, when it comes to your genes and genome, that is. The year is 2001. After a decade of work and billions of dollars, the first draft of the human genome sequence has been assembled the result of a race between the public-funded Human Genome Project and Craig Venter's private company, Celera. The Prime Minister Tony Blair and US President Bill Clinton linked up by satellite to celebrate the achievement, with Clinton making the somewhat unscientific claim that today we are learning the language in which God created life. And lo, there was much hype. But for all the claims that we had finally unlocked the secrets of human biology and were setting off into a new era of gene driven medicine, there was one rather glaring issue with this genomic book of life. Where were all the genes? The year before the grand announcement of the draft human genome, two men were drinking in the bar at a scientific conference at Cold Spring Harbor in New York. One was Ewan Burney from the European Bioinformatics Institute based in Cambridge. The other was Francis Collins, director of the US National Human Genome Research Institute. And both were up to their necks in the race to read the human genome. At the time, the finish line was still pretty far away, and nobody yet had a good idea about how many genes it would ultimately take to make a human. Together, Bernie and Collins hatched a plan to launch a sweepstake on the answer. It would cost a dollar to bet in the year 2000, $5 in 2001, and $20 in 2002, as scientists got closer to the actual answer with the winner to be announced in three years' time at the same conference. They roped in the conference director to act as bookie and started collecting bets from the research community. By the time of the 2003 meeting, some 460 people had put down hard cash for what had become known as the Gene Sweep. Most of the guesses that came in early were quite large, ranging from the high tens of thousands to more than 150,000. As more data came in from the sequencing labs, that number came down, averaging out at around 60,000. In the end, they were all too high. By the time the 2003 meeting rolled around, the number of human genes in the database, as agreed in the original GeneSuite rules, was just 24847 The $1,200 jackpot went to Lee Rowan, a Seattle genome researcher who picked the number 25,947. Still an overshoot, but only just. Rowan split her winnings with the only two other researchers who bet on less than 30,000 genes. Paul Deere from the UK Medical Research Council, who guessed 27,462, and Olivier Jaillon of Genoscope, the French National DNA Sequencing Centre, who plumped for 26,500. Looking back from today's vantage point, the fact that just three guesses were even remotely in the right ballpark seems staggering, but it highlights how little was known about the human genome at the time and how fast our knowledge has accelerated. And as you might expect, nearly 20 years after Rowan, Deer and Jayon pocketed their winnings, and I hope spent at least some of it in the conference bar, the official correct figure of 24,847 genes is out of date. Around the time of the first announcement of the draft human genome, David Bentley, then head of genetics at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, where much of the human genome was sequenced, confidently announced, "We will have a best reference sequence by 2003 and will have identified all the genes by 2004. That will give us access to all the genetic information about ourselves. It's unchanging and unequivocal." Even now, the exact number of genes in the human genome is up for debate. A confusion that owes more than a little to the fact that nobody is quite sure what a gene actually is. We've moved far beyond the early days of molecular biology, when a gene was a stretch of DNA that was copied into a specific type of messenger RNA and decoded to make a protein. In a world of non-coding RNAs, microRNAs, weird genome rearrangements, and much more, the exact number of genes in the human genome largely depends on who's counting and what they're including. Most researchers now put the number of human genes at somewhere between 20,000 and 25,000, with some studies even going as low as 19,000 or so. Whatever the precise number, It's still a fraction of the 100,000-ish that was bandied around in the early days of the Human Genome Project. So, why had those early guesses been so high? Around the time of the Gene Sweep, I was doing my PhD in Developmental Genetics at the Gurdon Institute in Cambridge. I distinctly remember learning that there were around 100,000 human genes. This made sense, given that the body is made up of a repertoire of at least that many proteins. So, if one gene encodes one protein, then you're gonna need a hundred thousand genes, I guess. I also suspect there was more than a little bit of species exceptionalism at play, following the completion of earlier projects sequencing the genomes of simpler organisms. For example, the genome of the nematode worm C. elegans clocks in at roughly 20,000 genes, while the fruit fly Drosophila has 15,000. And of course, aren't we humans at least, say, five times more complex and awesome than a tiny fly or a worm? However, subsequent genome projects have proved that there is little connection between the number of genes in an organism's genome and its size or cleverness. In fact, recent research suggests that species tend to lose genes as they evolve more complexity, suggesting that less is more and use it or lose it might be more apt maxims for genomes than go big or go home. It turns out that humans are nothing special, at least in terms of the number of genes we have. Many organisms have far more genes than we do, Water fleas, smaller than a grain of rice, have around 31,000 genes. Octopuses have around 33,000. This fact always reminds me of one of the less well-argued articles about not eating animals that I have ever seen, which was published in The Guardian just after researchers announced that they had sequenced the octopus genome. The first line of the piece declares... They may be delicious, and sure, there are lots of them, but next time you're chomping down on your barbecued octopus, just remember they were the first intelligent beings on Earth and have more genes than you do. However, if the author applied this genetic standard to all her food, she would quickly find her plate looking rather bare. While it's true that many animal species have as many or more genes than humans, so would be off the menu, Plants are particularly blessed in the gene department. Grapes have around 30,000 genes, golden delicious apples 57,000, and wheat has nearly 100,000. Even the humble carrot has 26,000 genes. And although some fungi have under 10,000 genes, the largest mushroom genome analysed to date, belonging to the species Craterellus lutescens, has 52,289. So, if you're looking for a scientifically sound argument for vegetarianism, this ain't it. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show. Once the data from the human genome began to pour in, the fact that humans have fewer than 25,000 protein coding genes was only one of the scientific surprises. If they'd hoped that the human genome was like Netflix, packed with a fascinating mix of unique programming, unfortunately researchers discovered it was more like the worst cable channel ever, crammed with endless repeats of long cancelled shows and boring ads with only an occasional original episode to lighten the tedium. In fact, when they looked closely, researchers realized that actual genes make up less than 2% of all the DNA in the whole human genome. So what's all the rest? Is it just junk? We can thank Japanese-American geneticist Susumu Ono for the term junk DNA. Back in 1972, he published a paper entitled So Much Junk DNA in Our Genome, musing on an interesting mathematical problem. At the time, scientists already knew that a single human cell contained at least 750 times as much DNA as a bacterium. And they also knew that bacteria had a few thousand genes. A quick calculation suggested that if the number of genes in any genome was directly proportional to the amount of DNA, then humans should have 3 million genes, more or less. But hold up a minute. Ono also noted that lungfish and salamanders can have 36 times more DNA in their cells than is present in ours, suggesting that they should have 100 million genes. None of this really made sense. Human cells don't make three million proteins, And what would a flippin lungfish need with a hundred million genes anyway? The most sensible conclusion was that the vast majority of the human genome was junk, now more correctly known as non-coding DNA. And by implication, so were the genomes of pretty much all other species too. The exact quantity and function of all this non-coding DNA is still a hot topic in the world of genetics, and, like the exact number of genes, seems to depend on how you measure it and who you ask. But the one thing that most people agree on is that size isn't everything, at least when it comes to genes and genomes. The human genome consists of around 3 billion base pairs, or letters, To be strictly accurate, that's a haploid genome, one half of the full diploid set you get from mum and dad when egg meets sperm at the moment of fertilisation. So how does this stack up compared with other organisms? Mexican axolotls have more than 10 times as much DNA in their genome as we do, around 32 billion base pairs, and previously held the title of the animal species with the biggest genome to be fully sequenced to date only to be usurped by the Australian lungfish in 2021, whose genome clocks in at an impressive 43 billion base pairs, more than 14 times the size of our own. Both of these are dwarfed by the African lungfish, Protopterus aethiopicus, with a genome of 130 billion base pairs, but perhaps understandably, that's yet to be fully sequenced. Yet again, plants put in an impressive showing here, with all these slimy suckers dwarfed by the Japanese canopy plant, Paris Japonica, which went into the record books in 2010 with a genome calculated at around 149 billion base pairs. Yet the prize for the biggest genome on record, so far, goes to Polychaos dubium, a single-celled amoeba whose genome is supposedly an incredible 670 billion base pairs however as its dubious name might suggest some researchers cast doubt on the figure as it was calculated before the development of modern genomic analysis techniques even the number of chromosomes in the human genome 46 or 23 pairs is nothing to write home about And if you remember our recent reposted episode, Strands of Life, featuring the case of the missing chromosomes, you'll know that number came down from the original figure of 48. We don't have a particularly large number for a typical mammal either. While cats only have 38 chromosomes, that's 19 pairs, dogs have 78 or 39 pairs, while the South American rodent tympanoptimus Barreri, has an impressive 102 chromosomes, or 51 pairs. The simple single-celled pond dweller, Oxytrichia triphalax, beats this hands down with more than 15,000 chromosomes, most of which contain just one single gene. It's the result of some incredibly complex genetic jiggery-pokery that happens as the organism organises its genes in order to read them. Now that takes some counting. Speaking of other species and their genomes, as we discussed way back in our fifth ever episode, Vegetable Soup, published at the beginning of 2019, it's hard to talk about genomes and junk DNA without bringing up the Onion Test, devised by geneticist T. Ryan Gregory and published in a paper written together with Alexander Palazzo in 2014. Put simply, the Onion Test goes like this. The onion in your vegetable drawer has five times more DNA than humans. So if you're a researcher who thinks that non-coding DNA has a particular function in the genome, can you explain why an onion needs about five times more of it than a human to do basically the same thing? Unpeeling this idea a bit further, Gregory points out that some species of onions have around double the amount of DNA as your regular onions, while others have less than half. Yet, they're all pretty much the same, and have the same number of genes. So why would they need double or half the amount of non-coding DNA? And then there's the poisonous fugu pufferfish, often eaten, very carefully, as a delicacy in Japan. They have remarkably compact genomes, roughly an eighth of the size of our own, yet containing almost exactly the same repertoire of genes and very little junk. So how do fugu get by with virtually no non-coding DNA, while humans and many other species have so much? Nobody really knows, but as is so often the case, the answer is probably just, well, it evolved that way. Susumu Ono suggested as much in his seminal paper on junk DNA, arguing that the genome that humans have ended up with at this current point in time is the result of evolutionary processes at work over eons. As he put it in a beautiful quote, the triumphs as well as the failures of nature's past experiments appear to be contained in our genome. So, given that most of our genome isn't actually genes, What does the rest of it do? Well, it's complicated and there's still a lot we don't know. We can probably draw some kind of line between the DNA in our genome that has some kind of biological use and the stuff that is genuinely junk. But the definition of functional covers an awful lot of ground and depends on, yep, you guessed it, how you measure it and who you ask. Functional regions of DNA can act as control switches, turning genes on and off. They can be transcribed into RNA, not to make a protein, but to do something else useful in the cell. Then there are the structural bits, like telomeres at the ends of chromosomes, which effectively stop them from unravelling, and centromeres in the middle that are important when chromosomes are copied and separated as cells divide. And there might be other functions besides that we are yet to discover. Then there's all the rest. Some of this might be genuinely classed as junk. It's just stuff we've accumulated through our evolutionary history. It's not important and we can live with it. But we haven't yet winnowed it out through natural selection. Some bits of junk DNA can even become useful over time. For example, becoming control switches or other elements. Like using a handy-shaped thingy you found in the garage to fix something because it happens to fit the job. And then there's garbage. The stuff that really needs to go in the biological bin. This garbage DNA is positively bad for us and should eventually get booted out by evolution. For example, garbage DNA could cause unwanted changes in our genome that affect us in a bad way like rogue retro elements that hop about, mixing things up and causing mutations. Although, arguably, that might be a good thing in the long run by introducing new variations. As Nobel Prize-winning biologist Sidney Brenner wrote in 1998, Were the extra DNA to become disadvantageous, it would become subject to selection, Just as junk that takes up too much space, or is beginning to smell, is instantly converted to garbage by one's wife, that excellent Darwinian instrument. (sighs) Interesting that Brenner never considered his wife might take an alternative evolutionary journey and just move out. So, size doesn't matter, at least when it comes to genomes. It's what you do with it that counts. And as the only species that has been able to evolve to a point where we can read our own genetic code and start asking big questions about how it works and how it makes us who we are, we can perhaps be forgiven for thinking that the human genome is still pretty darn amazing. Certainly more special than a vegetable. But while humans are indeed pretty darn amazing, on a purely technical level, it's increasingly looking like our actual genomes are rather boring. To wrap up, I want to read you a short excerpt from my first book, Herding Hemingway's Cats, Understanding How Our Genes Work, from a conversation I had with the curmudgeonly evolutionary biologist, Professor Dan Grau from the University of Houston, in which I asked him why we put so much importance on the contents and function of our own human genomes. Humans want to feel that they're special, I whine. Am I not more special than an onion? I'm treated to a dismissive eye roll. Either you have to assume that humans are the pinnacle of creation, that everything is functional and those organisms with more DNA than us have junk DNA but we don't, or you have to assume that humans are a regular organism that has junk DNA just like everything else. He brings up the example of Johannes Kepler the German astronomer who helped convince the world that we revolve around the sun rather than the other way around. Humans object every time to their demotion from the centre of the universe. Let's face it, we are not special. People say, oh, the dinosaurs went extinct and here we are alive. Actually, the dinosaurs ruled the earth for millions of years and the human race has been here for About 100,000 years, so let's be modest, hmm? Evolution doesn't care about the fact that we write books and get university degrees. It's a humbling thought, but he's right. To put it bluntly, evolution only really cares that you get laid, and how many babies you make in the process. That's the only thing, he agrees. If you look at the world with more objective eyes, you'll see that we are nothing, There are more ants than humans, and in terms of number of species, then of course it's beetles. He tips a nod to the quote, or variations of it, attributed to the brilliant geneticist J.B.S. Haldane, who said, If one could conclude as to the nature of the creator from a study of creation, it would appear that God has an inordinate fondness for beetles. Although, as we covered in our episode on J.B.S. Haldane, It's not clear whether Haldane ever really did say this pithy epigram. One thing is true. However you believe humans came into existence, and however fascinating you think we are, our genomes are nothing special. Sorry. That's all for now. We'll be back next time with a report from Gregor Mendel's 200th birthday party, which is being thrown by the Genetic Society at the Royal Horticultural Society's gardens at Wisley in Surrey. I've got my party hat on and I am ready to go. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo was designed by James Mayle. Audio production was by Sally LePage. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.